Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm really aiming at it novices and strugglers, those who have not yet come to enjoy the great Word of God. More information about the book project is available at thoroughlyequipped.org, and we're also starting Zoom groups uh, locally, uh, but we can add you from across the country and across the world if you're interested. Drop me a line. For the radio show, we're in the book of Genesis, a great book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. Please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. We have been in the life of Abraham for some time. Last week's show is available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcast, SoundCloud, and so on. And we covered the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And before that, Abraham's passionate and amazing discussion and haggling with God over justice and judgment and righteousness. On today's show, we have the wrap-up to Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot and his family. And then we move into chapter 20 and 21 with Abraham's encounters with Abimelech. Lord, be with us today. Help us to understand your word, your character, what you want for us and from us in the days to come. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station, and the show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're starting in the middle of Genesis 19 today. We had covered a lot of Genesis 19, uh, the famous parts with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But interspersed within that are the verses that talk about Lot and his family. And so that's where we're going to pick things up today. Verses 10 and 11 is where things had reached a climax. The Sodomites outside were attacking and threatening those inside. The angels respond by rescuing Lot and striking the men blind. So we pick things up in verses 12 through 14, back inside the house. Verse 12 says, The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Verse 12 is an interesting open-ended question or command. You know, at this point, Lot is probably in shock and quite open to suggestion and prompting. And the prompting is about his family, first of all, although one would hope you wouldn't need much prompting there, but also anyone else. So this is Lot's opportunity to directly bless his family, but also beyond that. Very similar to Abraham, right? He's going to be blessed, but the purpose is to bless others. And that is part of the question here in verse 12. Remember, the size of the family here is is implied to be six. And in chapter 18, verse 32, when Abraham was haggling with God, the number that they came up with at the end was 10. And so the open-ended part of verse 12 allows for other people, not just family, but servants, friends, maybe other decent people that Lot knows in the community. Verse 13, the word outcry, we saw this a couple of times last week and talked about the sorts of sins that that implies and does not imply, but something with violence, threats, injustice would be at the top of the list. 
And we talked at great length in last week's show about the sin of Sodom, which is defined precisely in Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50. Verse 14 is the invitation from Lot to the sons-in-law. And it indicates his modest faith. I mean, he's willing to do something. But what always amazes me about this passage is they not only won't listen and go along, but they think he's joking. It reminds me of 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 and 16, said to Jerusalem at the end of its time, before the Babylonian exile, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. So very similar to what Lot is going through here. But I think it also tells us a lot about Lot, that they're laughing at him. They don't take him seriously. I've thought about this in my own regard, uh, that if I were to do something like this at work, if I were convinced that this is the way things were going to go, and I were to share this, people wouldn't laugh at me, right? There's, they have enough respect for me where they might think I have a brain tumor, or they might think, you know, they're not sure what to do with it. But laughter is not what they would do with that moment if I were to start talking like Lot does here. Now, in your text note, you may see a footnote that says that this can be translated either pledged to marry or have married. So it's not clear from the text which way this is going. If they're already married, it's interesting and perhaps revealing that neither has children yet. Cass quotes Paul Ludwig, who says Sodom has enjoyed only sterile attachments, generating nothing. And maybe they're just engaged to be married, but either way, they're not that attached to them, right? They're not going to go along with the daughters. Maybe they think it's a short-run trip and they'll be back. I, I don't know. But, you know, it's just interesting to think of engaged or married men not going with their wives in this moment. All of this, of course, points to their hardened hearts and their spiritual blindness. Uh, it's likely they were physically blinded. If we read the earlier passage, literally, they were physically blinded. Now, maybe they weren't part of the mob. Maybe there's some hyperbole in the description early in the chapter, but it'd be interesting if they were both physically blind and spiritually blind, as they clearly reveal here in verse 14. Certainly parallels what Christ saw during his ministry, particularly the rich young ruler's unwillingness to follow. And then broadly, it also speaks to Lot's choices to marry his daughters, but maybe there weren't good choices in Sodom. It certainly doesn't look like a great place for uh, believers in God to find uh, an appropriate spouse. So Lot here is not known, not seen as a credible witness to or for God. Now, why is this? Had he been a hypocrite? Was he just not holy enough? Maybe he was a nice guy, but maybe something like the silence of Adam. With Noah, we know from 2 Peter 2, 5, that he was a preacher of righteousness, and he had a life and walk to match. But of course, Noah only gets to save some of his family too. He was unable to influence a society. So it may not be so much about Lot's imperfections as the nastiness that is in Sodom. Of course, we also know that Lot started off near Sodom when he first settled away from Abraham, chapter 13, verse 12. But eventually he is in Sodom, and that's what we find here. After this encounter in verse 14, Lot's not going to try to get anyone else, no servants, no neighbors, colleagues, whatever. Is it that he doesn't care enough or have the courage? Maybe there's just no possibilities practically. Again, he's in contrast to Abraham, who seems to work much harder and be much more effective in the world. I think we could also apply this to how leery we are of sharing 
the gospel or other advice when we've been burned in dealing with other people, right? He, Lot's just had this very embarrassing, tough moment with his sons-in-law, and he probably is not quite in the mood to try that again. When we've been rejected or have had difficulty, we still need to find the courage to do the right thing. All right, verses 15 through 17, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. The first thing to note here is the timing. There's nothing given for the destruction of verse 14. And we read in verse 15 that it's early the next morning. So it's probably a long, anxious night. Now, why is it early the next day? Well, this is before strangers would come in the city and before workers would head out to the field. So you're just getting the people who live in Sodom with the judgment. So here we see evidence of the discriminant justice and judgment of God. This would also allow the judgment to be more visible, and figuratively, it's the dawning of a new day. It's also interesting to consider whether Lot was supposed to leave after verses 12 through 14. Is he awaiting a command, or is he procrastinating? But when they said get out, he still stays around at least for that night. In any case, it still takes urging, verse 15, and then hesitation in verse 16. A number of analogies to to put here. Uh, He's leaving his comfort zone, his materialism. He's leaving behind possessions, maybe his position, the fear of the unknown. Remember, Abraham had to leave behind the unknown and many of these things. And so Lot stands in stark and unimpressive contrast to Abraham in this regard. There's also a parallel here to Genesis 3 that he's doubting God's goodness, his word, and his judgment. The Life Application Bible says it is easy to criticize Lot for being hypnotized by Sodom when the choice seems clear to us. To be wiser than Lot, we must see that our hesitation to obey stems from the false attraction of our culture's pleasures. All right, so it's always easier for us to see it in other people. By definition, it's harder to see it in ourselves. Reminiscent, I think, of Revelation 18, verse 4, where believers are called to leave Babylon in the book of Revelation. Babylon stands in for uh, the culture, economy, politics of the world. And we need to be very careful not to enmesh ourselves in those things as Lot has done here and finds it very difficult to leave it behind. Verse 16, the angels grasp him, but finally in verse 17, they instruct him to flee twice. So Lot and company were not entirely whisked away, although it's taking a lot of effort on the part of the angels. They had to participate, exhibiting a weak faith, but a faith nonetheless, much like justification, right? Or even aspects of our sanctification. It's all by God's provision, but often God requires some participation on our part. We have to accept the gift of justification. It's not merely offering it that's sufficient. It has to be accepted on faith. And also all the work by the angels here underlines God's desire to answer Abraham's petition at the end of chapter 19, verses 29, as it wraps up. The word mercy here is a big deal, verse 16 as well. Titus 3, 4, and 5, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Jude 22 and 23, Be merciful to those who doubt, save others by snatching them from the fire. There's also mercy in that there's only four righteous people, semi-righteous people it turns out, but they're still saved. Remember that Abraham had requested ten 
or more and four will make the cut. And it's emphasized here very strongly, the, the idea of God's mercy. In the Noah account, it was mostly about Noah's righteousness, and there was less apparent need for God's mercy. Now, all of us need mercy and grace, but it's more obvious with Lot than it is with Noah. Lot is declared righteous in Second Peter 2, three times in fact, but that righteousness must only be relative to Sodom. And it still is the case, though, that he has enough and a modest faith that's sufficient to save him. All right, verses 17 through 22, as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain, flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains, this disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to and it is small, let me flee to it, it is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. Verse 17 says to flee and don't look back. And of course, there's a picture here to the limited role of our own past, even in matters of life and death, that we look back to learn some things, but we put that behind us and we press forward to what God has in the future. It's also a passionate rejection of sin The problem is Lot doesn't agree. Verse 19, he says, if I do that, I'll die. And I think for us, giving up sin often feels like death and certainly requires a death to self. 18 through 21, Lot gets a concession. Instead of getting to the mountain, he wants to go to a small village. And he's going to run right in the middle versus running completely away. Again, a picture of concession and compromise. It's a shorter distance. Maybe it's easier living. That is part of his request. Maybe he's old and fat. Maybe this physically would be a grueling travel for him and he doesn't want to go that far. 1 Corinthians 10 13 promises that God won't tempt us beyond what we can bear. And Lot receives further mercy here, that he is still being worked with, so to speak, by the angels. By allowing compromise, though, it's interesting that God further limits himself. Verse 21 tells us it was a village he had planned to destroy. So part of the mercy to Lot is pulling back on the judgment that he was going to render on this little town. And verse 22 is more of the same. They can't act until he leaves it behind. Interesting, the limits of God. God can't make a square circle. There are limits even on God in the sense of logic. And so God has made a commitment to Abraham about justice and therefore is pictured in verses 21 and 22 as pulling back on what he intended to honor his commitments. Again, cities don't look very promising. We had Cain, Babel, we have Abraham in tents. You know, Lot has been in Sodom, which obviously looks rough. And now he's just saying, well, can I have a smaller city? Again, very much a picture of compromise. In some, this is a picture of a baby Christian, carnal, milk-drinking, compromising, unaware of God's wrath and sadness about sin, and therefore the extent of his grace and mercy. Finally, a couple of comparisons between Abraham and Lot as we exit the passage here. They've both been called to go. And what did we get from Abraham? Faithful obedience. What what do we get from Lot? Second-guessing. And then we also saw Abraham bargaining, but he was bargaining reverently for others. And here's Lot bargaining more casually and it's completely focused on himself all right a good place to take a break please consider becoming a p3 partner at pureradio.org to pray provide and promote the work of this ministry spread the word about pure radio this station and this show welcome back to the word diet we were in genesis 19 verses 12 through 22 in the first segment and verse 22 had left it that the angel had told lot to flee there quickly to zoar with his family 
We did verses 23 through 25 last week, so that takes us to verse 26, the very famous verse, but Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. I've read that the Dead Sea area is dotted with formations like this. That's interesting. And in a sense, she's turned her back on God, right? When she looks back, she turns her back on God. Reminiscent of Jesus at a point in his ministry, Luke 9, 62, Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And so looking back means looking away from God, and that's not tolerated here. Now, we've talked a lot about God's mercy uh, in this first uh, part of today's show, but there's no mercy here. There's a limit to God's patience. Why? Matthew Henry says, it seemed like a small thing, but we are sure by the punishment of it that it was a great sin. So now we're busy trying to infer what was the great sin. Well, she disobeyed God's direct command, for one thing, back in chapter 19, verse 17. And it's similar maybe to seeing the face of God when we see the unadulterated wrath of God, and it's that fierce that we cannot look upon it without suffering for that. It's probably curiosity on her part. Uh, And in this sense, she would be trivializing God's judgment into a spectator sport. This isn't, you know, watching NASCAR waiting for a crash. This is serious business, right? The judgment of other people. And we don't look upon that lightly or trivially. The most likely thing, though, is that she's probably looking back longingly with an inclination to return, even with the recent events. Remember back to verse 16 that Lot had hesitated, certainly reminiscent of the Israelites with Egypt in the wilderness, and it points to, at least for an economist, the inability to properly weigh benefits and costs. Jesus uses this story in Luke 17, verses 28 through 33, to talk about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and perhaps the end times as well. He says there, it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. And so there's a call to discipleship in all this. We don't look back at an old profitless life. We look forward to what God has given us in his kingdom through the Spirit and through his word and through what Jesus has done for us. So we focus on that instead. Reminiscent, I think, as well, Philippians 3, 13 and 14, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There's just no room for longingly looking back at the past. It's the same in Revelation 18. Christians are called to leave Babylon behind. It's the same as Abraham in Genesis 12. He's called to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and he's called to go to Canaan. There's always a leave, and there's always a go. And we're going to get ourselves in trouble if we focus too much on the leaving and what's left behind. The cute way to phrase this would be that it's difficult to get Lot and his family out of Sodom, and it's difficult to get Sodom out of Lot and his family. And that's true with us as well, right? The call to leave sin behind is really difficult. We have to get out of it, and we have to get the sin out of us. And that's, first of all, justification, but later, the process of sanctification, and ultimately, glorification. All right, we've already done verses 27 through 29 last week, so that takes us to verse 30. 
Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. First of all, the word settled is troubling, unsettling, if you will. Again, Abraham's a nomad, and that's the lifestyle of the pilgrim. Uh, The follower of God is, is a nomad, a pilgrim, a sojourner. And Lot continues to settle, and settle in not very good places. It's interesting that he leaves Zoar, the small town that he wanted to settle in, uh, but he ends up, you know, even though he's afraid of the mountains, that's where he ends up going. Maybe all these events have just scared the tar out of him, and the mountain seems like the best place for him to be. The angels had allowed this previously, but his choice didn't work out at Zoar, and for whatever reason, he decides to go ahead and agree with the angels and head to the mountains. All of this also implies Lot's poor family planning continued, right? He didn't do a great job finding them husbands in the first place, and now he doesn't find them any husbands at all. He had options, and it's easy to forget this as we read this little verse. He could have gone back to Haran. That's where Abraham went for Isaac's future wife. We've already seen that. He could have gone and limped back to Abraham and his colleagues. That probably would have been the best move after all this trouble. Why not return to Abraham anyway? Would have been a good choice, but instead, probably it's pride. He's a prodigal son who never returns to the father. It's also ironic that there wasn't enough room in the land for Abraham and Lot, and he got the choicer land, but now he's broke, doesn't need the room, and he's confined to a hole in the ground. It's also ironic that he was so much in the world, and now he's moved to the other extreme, which is complete isolationism. Likewise, our sin can be a matter of moving directly from A to Z. A lot of times it's traveling slowly from A to Z. And that's what we saw with Lot and Sodom. But now he jumps completely to the other end of the spectrum and commits a very dramatic sin here by living in isolation and deciding not to return to Abraham. Sin can be that way, right? We just wake up one morning and we're in a cave. What, what happened? How did I end up here? But unfortunately, instead of turning to Abraham or repenting or going where he needs to go to make things better, it gets even worse, as we see in the next episode. Verses 31 through 36, One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you can go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. Okay, wow. Well, uh, this is not... uh Sunday school material right here, going R-rated dramatically with this passage. They get him drunk, and then he gets him pregnant. Uh, On drunkenness and sex, similar to Noah's post-flood destruction narrative, at that point it was only drunkenness, nakedness, and personal disgrace. But of course, things are much worse here. On the drunkenness, I like what Matthew Henry says here. We never read any more of Lot. From the silence of Scripture, we may learn that drunkenness, as it makes men forgetful, so it makes them forgotten. And many a name, which otherwise might have been remembered with respect, is buried by its contempt and oblivion. And that certainly happens for Lot. A lot of things to say about the pregnancies here to preserve the family line. First of all, we're looking at incest, uh, so that's remarkably troubling. He's so out of it that this happens twice. I mean, once would be bad enough, but it's back to back. 
you know, Lot is a compromiser with some righteousness and good influences in his background. His wife and daughters are natives of Sodom. I mean, they live that way. I think it also tells us that the, the temptations often come from those to whom we are closest. But Lot is tempting them by putting them in a very difficult position. We'll see a very similar story to this in Genesis 38 with Judah, who's in the lineage of David and Jesus, by the way. But we'll cover that a different day. And there's sort of a uh, some justice here as well, right? Remember that Lot had offered them up to the men of Sodom in chapter 19, verses 6 and 7, and so they turned the tables in a way here. Given Lot's life of compromise and no trust in God, this is not a surprising outcome. It's shocking, I suppose, but not particularly surprising. And there's no recorded response from Lot here. What could he say? Verses 37 and 38, the older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Now, neither the text nor God show up to directly condemn this, but the results speak for themselves. In terms of people groups, we end up with the Moabites and the Ammonites. Both of these would be bitter enemies of Israel in the future, and so this points to the long-run consequences of sin. But here's the kicker. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, and maybe you've heard this before, there's four women mentioned there. You've got Ruth, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba. And all four of those stories are very messy, and all four of them involve sex and sexual immorality. But God can redeem that all four of those women are in the ancestry of David and then Jesus is awesome. Now, the story of Ruth does not involve Uh, any sexual immorality, but Ruth is descended from Moab. And so Moab is in the line of Jesus. And so it's amazing, again, that this story, along with the other three crazy stories, are all in the lineage of Jesus from Matthew 1. Do you need one more story that God can redeem? Here it is. God can redeem the worst stories in our lives and turn them into great things. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and Friend Me there. Podcasts are available at previous episodes on Spotify, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We move on to Genesis 20 now after finishing up Genesis 19 in the first two segments. We'll start with verses 1 and 2. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. A small thing in verse 1 that's worth noting, it says Abram moved on. Why? Well, he was always a nomad, but no reason is given here. I think from the text perspective, it could perhaps be to draw the comparison to Lot, who continues to settle even after Sodom in chapter 19, verse 30. Now, why did Abimelech take her or want her? Patrick Henry Reardon says it says a great deal of Sarah's beauty or of Abimelech's preferences in women. Maybe she'd be a good grandma. Maybe she was a classy lady. Maybe he's pursuing an exotic multicultural addition to his harem. Maybe there's a political opportunity with some dowry possibilities. But at least physical attraction mentions that in chapter 20, verse 6. Of course, the more important thing is back to Abraham that he and Sarah, but Abraham in particular, is making the same mistake again and had already been rebuked once for it back in chapter 12, verses 11 through 13 with Pharaoh. Now, key details that the rebuke was from Pharaoh was not from God, so we'll come back to that later. But they have this sister act, so to speak, chapter 20, verse 5, and it's only revealed as part of the truth, chapter 20, verses 
12 in particular. And so, you know, we're wondering what's going on here. Uh, should Sarah confront him when Abram leads against God's will? But there's no voice from Sarah here. Again, Abram is failing to honor the marriage bond. He's abandoning his wife to a king's harem. He's trying to save his own life by risking his wife's chastity and failing to trust God. And he sacrifices his wife as Lot had offered to do with his daughter. So this is not that impressive, certainly. He continues to be driven by fear to some extent. Chapter 20, verse 13, he mentions that, or at least that's his excuse, despite God's promises and faithfulness. Maybe he's interested in profit, as he had in Egypt, and maybe it's just a habit. I think we would see this as worse than chapter 12. He's got weaker motives. There was no famine. He's got less excuse, given his greater faith. And there's more at stake, given that Sarah is pregnant or soon to be pregnant. Beyond that, with a baby on the way, Cass says it's recklessness with the promise of Sarah's restored fertility. Right? It's one thing when she's not capable of having babies, apparently, to give her to Pharaoh. But now God has promised that she's going to be fertile. And so giving her to Abimelech right here, allowing this to take place, uh, easing that is uh, terrible. It's also, I think, remarkable after Abraham's amazing success in chapter 18, but I think we also maybe see an interesting parallel to Noah's problems after the devastation of the flood, maybe similar to what Abraham uh, is going through after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We would also hope that Abraham would learn from his mistakes. This is 25 years, and you would think memories fade, but not this one. I'm pretty sure they remember this one in the old scrapbook. And it is often easier to sin the second time, I think this points to us that we should avoid it the first time and risk getting ourselves into a pattern. The strength of besetting sins can be legendary, and so we're best off by not even indulging those to begin with. And this time they're in the promised land. The last time was in Egypt. And so I think it's interesting that sin can follow us into our promised land as well. It doesn't follow us into heaven, but it can cause us trouble within our sanctification. I think the other possibility here is that Abraham just doesn't see this as a mistake, at least unless one gets caught. Remember that God had not told him this was wrong in chapter 12, and really things had turned out pretty well. Same thing with Ishmael and Hagar back in chapter 16, right? We, we criticized that, but you know everything seemed to turn out pretty well there. And remember that they're wanderers, so this may have been more than just these two occasions. It may have been something he did quite often. We're only told about two times in Genesis, but that doesn't mean it only occurred two times in Abraham's life. Big picture is that God is in the midst of fixing his ideas of children within marriage. We saw that with Isaac and Ishmael in chapter 18. We'll see it again in chapter 22. And now marriage directly, how he treats his wife. Verses 3 through 7. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You're as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She's a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say he is my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I've kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. So verse three, Abimelech is visited by God in a vision and you're as good as dead. Whoa, that would be terrible to hear. And so there's punishment for him despite his quote unquote innocence. We're not really sure how innocent Abimelech is in this. Verse two says he took her. So there's probably some covetousness the additional polygamy, greed, etc. 
And in any case, Abimelech's relatively good intentions are not enough to save the day here. I think even so, we've got the clear conscience of verses 4 and 5. The King James renders this the integrity of the heart. So that's a cool phrase here. And God agrees with them in verse 6. He he asserts it, and then God uh, ratifies his claim about that. And this does allow for Abimelech to have strong, uh, bold responses to God in the midst of this. And all of this will turn out fine, at least with his repentance and his obedience. He also calls God Lord, which implies some knowledge of God, either directly or through Abraham, either now or previously. But none of this is sufficient to hit the mark and avoid sin. I think we can also read the threat of death in verse 3 as hyperbole, uh, given the impending prayer of verse 7 as promised and verse 17 as delivered. So 3 is a scare tactic, I guess. Uh, so to speak, and then verse 7 is the quickly following extension of mercy. So in verse 3, God doesn't allow Abimelech to sin unknowingly, and then verse 6 strongly encourages him not to sin knowingly. Abraham's sin had opened the door for Abimelech's greater sin, and God is intervening to try to stop that. This has application to God holding us back from sins we don't even know about, right? So sins are not just the things we knowingly do. A lot of times they're things that are unknowingly done where we make mistakes. And this is in direct contrast to what God did in chapter 12 with Pharaoh. God just let that go. But that's not going to be the case here. So there are more direct lessons for Abraham, Sarah, and Abimelech available. He's not going to let Abimelech get in the way of his plans with Abraham and Sarah. And he's making clear to contemporaries and to us that nothing happened and that Isaac is, in fact, Abraham's son. In fact, it's repeated twice in verses 4 and 6. God's working hard to keep his word in the face of Abraham's dishonesty and his scheme. Abimelech's words, I think, are interesting here. Verse 4, to destroy an innocent nation. And then verse 7, God responds with you and all yours. So, again, innocence a little strong here. But apparently more innocent than Pharaoh's greater unrighteousness and guilt in chapter 12, here we have a prophetic dream rather than the plagues that are delivered to Pharaoh. Of course, for Pharaoh, the plagues are a foreshadowing of Egypt and Exodus as well. There's no need to do that with Abimelech. We're using the word righteousness and innocence here pretty liberally, but you know what does it mean to call Abimelech, Abraham, and Lot righteous, right? There's different types of righteousness, different degrees of righteousness, uh, sort of a funny word to, to use with all this sin going on. Interesting, the references to Abimelech's nation, because Abraham has promised an emerging nation, and so that contrast is vividly apparent here. And Abimelech's words here parallel Abraham's intercession for Sodom back in chapter 18, and the righteous here. Abimelech is not revealed to have done anything wrong. It's a seemingly relatively innocent nation or family that's being punished. But once the ignorance is removed, the behavior is no longer excusable. Matthew Henry says ignorance will excuse no longer than it continues. And if Abimelech fails to repent here, he'll be treated in a manner equivalent to Sodom. Verse 7 describes the intercessory prayer by Abraham, and he's labeled a prophet here. So he's the first in the Bible to receive that title. And it's ironic, given that he has lied, or at least shaded the truth. So despite Abraham's mistake, he's still given this status. He still gets to intercede for others, even though he has harmed the others. Why? Well, again, God desires that Abraham would be a blessing to all nations. 
God trusts that he can do this, presumably because of his effort for Sodom. And given the punishment of infertility in verses 17 and 18, Abraham also is getting to pray in light of his own struggles with fertility. And I think that's an interesting application for us as well, that many times we get to pray for people who uh, are in similar positions to what we've been in, and we can empathize and pray more effectively in those cases. This is also the guilty praying for the innocent. You might think, well, that's perverse, but in a sense, it's always the case. We're all guilty, and praying for the innocent uh, is something the guilty should do. And I think the last point here is that it's probably really convicting for Abraham. And really, it's the only thing that happens to Abraham, so to speak. And maybe the natural consequences are sufficient many times. Praying for Abimelech, having to do that, uh, is itself quite convicting. Okay, verses 8 through 13. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. So verse 8 always makes me smile. Verses that say very early the next morning, the dude is an early riser, at least this particular morning, he's getting out of bed quick. Verse 8, they're very much afraid, so this underlines their proper response to God. Those whom Abimelech has influenced or blessed understand what's at stake here. Again, this is in contrast to chapter 19, verse 14, where Lot tried to share judgment and, and fear with his sons-in-laws, and they laugh at him. That's not happening here with Abimelech. Also similar to Melchizedek, back in chapter 14, again, he's faithful, although he's not chosen. Verse 9, the confrontation, rebuke, and he demands an explanation. Ironically, he's acting like a prophet and God's messenger to Abraham. And ironically, Abraham here is accused of being like the Sodomites, committing offenses against the innocent. Verse 10, there's another question, and it reads as if Abraham does not respond to the question in verse 9. But in any case, it deals with Abraham's motive. So we get the response from Abraham starting in verse 11. And again, it's important to note, we, we heard nothing from Abraham in the former episode in chapter 12. So now we get to hear details that we did not pick up in chapter 12, much deeper than the previous episode. Verse 11 starts with no fear of God. This is the first biblical reference to this phrase. Again, irony abounds here, right? Verse 8, they were very much afraid. And this is all in the face of Abraham's bad works and thus his lack of fear in God. Who, who fears God is it's Abraham in this case, right? He's willing to be disobedient when Abimelech and his household are in great fear. Now, perhaps it's reasonable. I mean, that's what Abraham has, but it'd be presumptuous to imagine that everyone else has it. But at the end of it, it turns out to be an offensive suggestion and assumption. He's assuming things about their faith. And I think for us, we have to be really careful making assumptions about others' beliefs in God. We need to have conversation about that, not make assumptions. So verse 11, he says, yes, it's my wife, but verse 12, the difference between a sister and a half-sister, this is the shading of the truth. Now, this is just now revealed to the reader. There's nothing on Sarah's lineage in chapter 11, verses 29 through 31. And then he doubles down on the half-truth. She really is my sister. 
Some squirrely language the rest of the way. Verse 12, she became my wife, implies it just passively happened to him. And then verse 13, God had me, which implies some blame shifting. Anyway, not Abraham's most impressive moment. Verse 13 describes it as a pattern or plan to deceive. In other words, hey, it's nothing personal. We do this all the time. And with all of their wandering, maybe this does make it a valid excuse. It does make it a harder habit to break if they did this often or even more than once, you know, it does make it more understandable. Or maybe this is just a convenient excuse or lie. Abraham seems to be dancing here, uh, especially after saying such nasty things about Abimelech's apparent faith back in verse 11. Verse 13, Abraham says to Sarah, you can show your love for me. This is the first use of the Hebrew word has said, which is a loyal version of love, a key word in the Old Testament. Again, I think we ask, what else would one hope from Abraham here once he's sinned and been caught? Well, it would be repentance, taking ownership, setting the table best for avoiding sin in the future. And we're not really that impressed by what Abraham has done here. He trusted his own decision to lie over God's ability to work in Abimelech's life. Again, questions about agenda, timing, and methods. And it's premeditated here. G. Campbell Morgan says, Abraham thought that among a people who lack the fear of God, he must act for himself and without God. And that's not true. Two parties are silent here, and that's worth talking about as well. Abimelech has no verbal response, at least recorded. He can't refute the charges, doesn't care to dignify the remarks, or he just graciously lets the matter go, recognizing that Abraham's multiple explanations, quote-unquote, imply that no one explanation was good enough. Sometimes you just let people say their junk and let it go. The other party that's silent is God neither approving nor condoning, but he does allow Abimelech and the circumstance to take care of things. All right, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the first two segments today, we finished Genesis 19 and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah with a particular focus on Lot and his family. In the third segment, we got into Abraham's encounter with Abimelech, and we're going to finish that today Uh, the text in both Genesis 20 and 21. We left off with Genesis 20, verse 13, where God has intervened with Abimelech, and they've sorted all that out. And so that takes us to verses 14 through 18, as the situation resolves completely. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his slave girls, so they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So verses 14 and 15 is an amazingly gracious response from Abimelech. He returns Sarah, gives gifts, and then the generous land offer. Despite the events, he fears and references God. Why does Abraham take it to implite to refuse? In any case, it's God's amazing grace here when he should have been amazingly convicted. Sarah's also identified as his wife in verse 14, and that's a key part of the story and the end of it as God is working on Abraham as a husband. And Abimelech is also gracious with Abraham, but Cass notes his choice speech he reserves for Sarah. He treats her really well and really taking the place of Abraham, treating her better than Abraham has, 
And it's a lesson for Abraham in how better to treat his wife. Verse 16 continues the same idea. He's dealing directly with the offense done to her, silver to repay it, and to absolve her of any blame. The reference to your brother is interesting. Could be sarcasm or could be preserving her dignity by labeling her sister rather than wife. Leon Casp pursues that angle and says, Abimelech spares Sarah the shame of knowing that he knows her husband has unwifed her and to cover the offense done to her rather than focusing on the offense done to Abraham. He's aggressively lifting her up as her husband and her culture have not. Notice 17 and 18 again mentions Sarah by name and her position as wife. So verse 17, we get a prayer from Abraham, the only time it's recorded from Abraham that he prayed. Cass imagines that Abraham is chastened here, quote, astonished by Abimelech's delicate and noble response and by his obvious regard for Sarah as Abraham's wife, Abraham turns to prayer. And big picture in light of Genesis 12's call to be a blessing to the nations, we see that here, right? He had compassion for Lot back in chapter 13, but Lot was family. Now he's got compassion for a stranger and one that he had wronged. 17 and 18 points to God's punishment as barrenness. So apparently some time has passed here as well. Again, ironies abound. It's ironic given that Abraham was the one in the wrong. It's ironic given that this is exactly Abraham and Sarah's situation. So Abimelech's family gets the same circumstance as the condition of his new quote-unquote wife. And then he prays for them when he and Sarah were struggling with the same thing. You know, Abimelech's talked about a nation in verse 4, but you can't have a nation if you're not having kids. And so, in a way, Abraham here is directly blessing uh, Abimelech and his ability to be a nation, back to fulfilling what God wants from him in the call in Genesis 12. The next thing we read about is Sarah's womb opening up, chapter 21, verse 2, and all this underlines God's miraculous sovereignty with Abimelech here in chapter 20 and with Sarah in chapter 21. The threatened punishment was not meant to hurt Abimelech, but to get Sarah back and to get Abimelech's attention about God. And it's also an opportunity for Abraham to redeem himself with Abimelech. Back to the bigger picture, God intervenes here to save the mother of the promised one and her purity and to speak to their marriage. Despite Abraham's repeated sin, despite the fact that his sin and their weak faith had threatened the promised blessing, especially in the face of God's promises about the child. So God is going to you know, take care of business even when Abraham is not. And really something that's underneath the surface here is to uplift Abraham's view of Sarah and marriage. Until now, women and even one's wife were primarily seen as a seed bed. But as Leon Cass says, now it becomes clear that marriage in the household must be informed by and devoted to the transmission of the covenant and the perpetuation of its ways. And the way that's done is through marriage, healthy, robust, glorious marriage, and effective child-rearing. Cass summarizes this and then segues us to the next passage when he writes, God tells Abimelech that Abraham is a prophet who will intervene for him and his people. But Abimelech serves as God's prophet to teach Abraham that adultery is a sin and that it stains an entire people. Abraham, seeing his own misdeed, prays for this one and only time in an act of contrition. When God then heals Abimelech's people, Abimelech must conclude that Abraham is indeed a prophet and of a mighty God. 
It makes the possible the subsequent covenant and shows both how outsiders can sometimes help the patriarchs learn about their God and how, in turn, the patriarch's relation to God can become a moral blessing to other peoples. So for today, we're going to skip into the end of chapter 21 and talk about the last episode with Abimelech. So we'll pick it up with verses 22 through 24 of chapter 21. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. So this is sometime later, and possibly not even the original Abimelech might be his son, or a descendant of some sort. In this comment, he notes God's power and the potential usefulness of Abraham's blessing. And it's, of course, sad and ironic that he needed a vow from Abraham, right, who unfortunately did not let his yes be yes and his no be no. This, of course, points to us the lasting effects of sin, especially dishonesty, in damaging our witness and God's name, as well as our credibility. Verses 25 through 34 Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, Accept these seven lambs, for my hand is a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the Eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. So verse 34 indicates that Abraham settles down at this time. And we've made a great deal of Abraham being a wanderer and a sojourner, a man of tents, but there were times that he settled down. So it's important to note he's not simply a wanderer. He does have relationships of depth and influence. He is a social and communal being as well, not just some lone ranger out there. His first land purchase won't be till chapter 23, and that's only to buy a burial plot. So he's not buying land. Uh, so he's not settling down in that sense, but he does uh, settle in and form relationships with Abimelech and others. Back to verse 25, we've got this confrontation again over Wells, really similar to Genesis 13. We saw him dealing with Lot proactively, uh, the quibbling between the servants, and maybe it it had gotten to Abraham and Lot uh, in terms of arguing, but probably like it is here, Abraham is just preemptively dealing with the problem here with Abimelech, where in Genesis 13, it was with Lot. Matthew 18, 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. And so often we're just not very good at this. We hope the problem will go away. We pray that God will take care of it. But God's answer to this is usually, yeah, go talk to him. Work it out. So don't let your problems simmer. Don't uh, forget them. Don't put them away or pretend or procrastinate. Uh, Go ahead and deal with them as Abraham does faithfully at this point. Verse 26 It might come off as defensive, I suppose, but he's just declaring his innocence again, as he did in chapter 20. And innocence is part of relationship. If you're not innocent, then how can the relationship be effective? So he declares his innocence. That's sort of interesting. Verse 27, Abraham responds with a gift and a treaty. 
And then verses 28 through 30, the animals and gifts then serve as a witness uh, to what they have just completed. And then two small details that I think have quite a few applications. It's interesting at Beersheba, which, by the way, is a really important uh, geography reference going forward. He puts in a well, and verse 33 puts in a tamarisk tree, which is a small tree or shrub. Well, for one thing, it's interesting because these are parallels to Hagar's journey, and we'll read this next week, chapter 21, verses 14 and 15. And so both of those make an appearance there. So interesting, the parallels in the two passages. And you think about water and a tree, that's different than a pile of rocks, which was a common memorial, or, or building an altar, for example. So trees and water are a picture of growth rather than something that's stagnant. It's a picture of something that's long-lasting, but ultimately temporal, right? Whereas rocks are more a picture of eternal. Rocks eventually fade away, but it sure takes a lot longer. So it's something shorter term that grows rather than something that is stagnant, but eternal. And both of them connect back to the theme of hospitality. You've got the fruit from the tree. You've got an opportunity to preach under a tree because trees are often religious. And then you've got the water uh, itself, which is part of hospitality. So pretty cool combination here with teaching and hospitality combined. The last point to make here is a series of comparisons between this and the land squabble with Lot in chapter 13. That one resolved with a gift to kin. This one resolves with a gift and treaty with a king. And the one who had had Sarah on top of that. So this is a ticklish situation and a more sophisticated solution, especially in a political sense, right? Dealing with family and even friends is one thing. Dealing with outsiders and powerful people is another. Remember that Abraham is to be the founder of an emerging nation, and so there's a political angle to that. Second, the resources here are more constrained. Neither can simply walk away without tremendous sacrifice. This is not like the lot example where each could go their own way and have whatever they wanted pretty much. The, the resource constraint here is much more severe. Again, Abraham takes the initiative with a covenant of peace, and Abraham here is acting like God as one who takes initiative, who acts with grace and peace. And finally, Abraham again is a blessing to others, this time to another nation. And so Abraham will eventually be a nation. He's called to bless the nations, and he does that quite effectively here. So very cool to see the growth from chapter 13, which was amazing in its own, in its own respects. But here we've gone much more national and political uh, with Abraham in a much more difficult situation. So the last big thing in Abraham's story we'll get to in next week's episode. We'll talk about the birth of Isaac. Uh, Hagar and Ishmael are sent away, and then we've got the binding and so-called sacrifice of Isaac that we'll get into next week's episode with chapter 22. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the lessons we can learn from it, the applications in our own lives, how we handle other people, uh, how we stumble into sin of various types, whether it's Lot's problems in chapter 19 or Abraham's in chapter 20. Help us to walk aright with you. Help us to have our faith in you. Help us to be a blessing to the individuals around us, whether it's family and friends, or ultimately the outsiders and those in the nation. We thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Remember that previous episodes are available on Spotify, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.